Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're joined by Jeffrey Archer, His brand new book, Nothing Ventured, is out right now. It's a spin-off of his Clifton Chronicles stories. He's also celebrating the 40th anniversary of his third novel, Cain and Abel. It was a huge success. It sold 7 million copies in the UK alone. So we'll talk about the overnight success that that book was and how it's influenced his writing ever since. Uh, We also learn about what it's like having sold. Have a listen to this. 275 million books over 275 million books we'll talk about that and we'll find out because uh, he's got a very exacting writing routine it's incredibly particular as you'll hear so we try and uncover why i can't pinpoint where i became dedicated to the routine i i now uh, do but i think it's been least 30 books because I just find it easier that way I can think of a hundred reasons not to write a book so if you've got an excuse not to get out of bed you've got an excuse because you've got to see someone you've got an excuse because you're not feeling great you, you can find excuse after excuse so get there at six and get on with it that gives you an impression of the brilliant kind of chat that it is stick around there's more like that on the way with Jeffrey Archer in this week's writer's routine Yes, hello, welcome along. My name is Dan, this is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a skim through the working day of some of the world's most successful authors. And we're living up to that billing today, by the way. We've got one of the world's most successful authors on the show, Lord Geoffrey Archer. Uh, He was a member of Parliament for the Conservative Party. Then, after a scandal which left him almost bankrupt, he started writing. And now, over 40 years later... He's written 37 books, sold over 275 million copies. He's had 26 Sunday Times bestsellers. Uh, His first novel was Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less. And that was kind of a slow burn for him, I think. And and it was then on his third novel, Cain and Abel, which celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. That that was kind of an overnight success for him, really. It sold an unprecedented amount of copies in the first week. It sold 7 million so far in the UK alone. Uh, Now, Geoffrey, he's got a very exacting writing routine. Probably the most exact, precise and, you know, I've got to be honest, kind of luxurious at times writing routines that we've ever had. But he's earned that right. I mean, 275 million copies. We talk about where he escapes to to write. 
Uh, we talk about that very particular writing routine that I've described and how it developed, how it came to be. We also have a go at figuring out how much he knows about what's coming in the story, which turns out isn't that much, but we try and figure it out nonetheless. Now, um, when you sat there opposite Geoffrey Archer, you know, I was a little bit uh, terrified, kind of a bit terrified, because he's got that aura. Uh, but as soon as we started chatting, he just did turn out to be one of the nicest, kindest people I've probably met in a long time. Uh, after the interview was over, he gave me loads of really amazing words of advice, uh, really was very effusive in praise, so I can't thank him enough for that. Um, and you can kind of hear during the interview, uh, you know, him testing. I think that is a fair way to describe it, which so many, you know, people from... Uh, of that age, kind of from that era, do really, you know, they're, they're testing an interviewer because he's spoken about these things probably many, many, many times before. So he's kind of pushing the buttons, seeing how I'll run with it. And I think it's fair to say I probably passed the test. And there, there's some brilliant, sturdy jokes in there as well, if that makes sense. You'll hear it in just a sec. Now, it is fair to say that his writing routine is probably different from every other writer that we've had on, but don't be annoyed about that, I wouldn't say. The guy has sold millions and millions of books. It's allowed him to be very particular with how he likes to work and enjoy his leisure time. Uh, So that's all on the way. Some real good nuggets and gems about working in this one. We start off, as always, with what Jeffrey sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I write in my home in Mallorca, and I have uh, built what I would call a study, which overlooks the sea. So when I look up, I can only see the sea and the sky. Tell me a bit more about the room that you're in. So in this purpose-built study, what does it look yes. like? I- I'm imagining with you a, quite a, a big oak table. Don't disappoint me. <laughs> it's not oak. I don't think it's oak. I think it's teak. Um, a big table, because uh, I like to breathe. I like the space and everything is set out very carefully. The pads, the pens, the pencils, the rubber, uh, the pictures. I I, I like continuity, so it's important to, when I get there in the morning, to sit down and not have to worry about anything. Everything's where I want it to be. Uh, I handwrite the first draft with a pen, with a, a pilot pen. It then goes through, after three drafts handwritten, it goes to my secretary, Alison, who uh, sends it back triple-spaced. Then I go at it with a pencil and rubber. So, so that's for annotations, that's for notes, things like this? Yes. Okay. Uh, if I were to drop into your study in Mallorca mid-book, would I have any clues to the type of things that you're writing about? Uh, post-it notes lying in the walls, a big whiteboard no, perhaps with ideas? you would not. Because I, I never know what's on the next page. I'm very, very lucky if I have a vague idea three pages ahead. Uh, it comes that morning or that afternoon, according to... Uh, that I think my attitude has always been, if I know, you'll know. If I don't know, how can you possibly know? I think we'll dive into that a bit uh, in, in a few minutes, because I really want to unpack that first. The show's called Writer's Routine. Talk me through yours then, please. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing in Mallorca, how does it look? I would, ri- I would uh, wake about 5.30, um, put on a track suit, which I wear all day. Um, I would go to my office, which is 100 yards away, uh, this study that I've built in the cliff. 
at around five to six. I start work at six. I do two hours. Two hours from six to eight. I then have breakfast and read the morning papers. And 30 minutes before I'm due to go back at 10 o'clock, I lie down and think about what I have just written and what will come next. So I return at 10 o'clock. And that's the next second session is 10 o'clock until 12 o'clock. I then come out of that session and I will walk for one hour, remembering that in Mallorca it's 16 degrees in January, so a tracksuit is perfect. I walk for one hour and come back for lunch. After lunch, I lie down again for half an hour before the third session. The third session is from two until four. Uh, after that, I come out, have a, I relax after that session, after I've done three. I might watch a black and white movie, preferably from the 50s, to relax me. Then I go back at uh, 5.30, I'll be back lying down flat thinking again, return to my study at six, work from six until eight for two hours. After that, I will come out, have a light supper, might watch the evening news, in fact, almost always do, then return to my bedroom around 10-ish. Uh, I'm luckily sleep well, so uh, I'll be up again at 5.30 the next morning. The first draft takes 35, 36, 37 days, about 300 hours. I then take a four-week break and return and do what I call the fourth fifth and sixth draft. I then take a three-week break and do what I call the seventh, eighth, and ninth draft. Uh, I've pretty well there by then. Then I do one more read-through before I show it to the publisher. I then do the editing. So the book you have in front of you at the moment, Nothing Ventured, is probably the 14th draft. Now, there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> This podcast for two years has studied writing routines. Yes. And yours is the most precise, frightening <laughs> there's possibly been. Very simply, why? How, uh, talk to me through your process down the years, if you can. I mean, you're so well, many books I think you're 37 books down now. A at what point were you starting to have this formula of two hours not on? A form not a formula. I think it just suits me in the sense that I'm a very disciplined person. I think that comes from... Um, the days when I was a runner and had to train and then rest and then train and so on. I think may have come from that. I can't prove it. But it suits me. I'm able to concentrate for two hours before I begin to drift. Uh, my wife Mary can concentrate for, oh, four or five hours. And I admire her for that. But I'm a lark. She's an owl. So she puts in the work in great big stretches. I need the breaks. I need the breaks to think, so that when I've been writing for two hours, I need to think about what I've just written and where it's going, in case a big twist comes, a new idea comes, that you've got to go in a different direction. So I need the breaks. The breaks are very important. How many words are you hoping to get down in it throughout a whole day? I'd be lucky if I got 1,200, 1,200, 1,500 would be a lot. And this may seem quite boring, but the listeners do really enjoy this. 
Uh, is there anything else that kind of helps you keep going in your day? I mean, you say that you, you tend to run out of steam after a couple of hours, then you need a little bit of break. Is there something else that's keeping the energy going? A little quirk, a little I don't have any problems with energy, Dan. <laughs> <Got> any? <laughs> no, I just keep going. I love it. I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, first, I'm fortunate as a storyteller that the ideas never stop coming. That's the first thing. And second, I, I've always believed... Energy is a God-given gift. You either have it or you don't. Obviously, you can develop it if you work hard, but it's not its not something you can pop down to a shop and get a packet of. Your energy, is it solely contained to the things that you care about? So back in the day, you're running, then the politics, now you're writing, or are you as energetic and as passionate, you throw yourself in the deep end pretty much whatever you're doing? I think I I'm get involved with most things, yes, I think. Uh, my love of the theatre, my love of art, uh, my auctioneering. I would say I put the same passion and energy into all of them, yes. Do you write with music at all? Nope. Have a cup of coffee? Nope. It's just just the energy. I'm here to work, not drink coffee and listen to music. Let me take you right the way back then, 37 books ago, the first one, not a penny more, not a penny less. Yes, that's... You're quite right, that's... uh, (laughs) A long, that's now 45 years ago. Uh, heaven knows what I, the routine, then I had no routine then. Well, tr- I thought I had a good idea for a story. Uh, as much as you're able, can you try and remember it and talk me through uh, what would have been your date? I mean, back, because back then you were doing a lot more than, um, than focusing everything on the writing. Is well, there I, anything well, you remember from back then? Well, I was out of work and, and thought the idea of four young men all losing their everything they'd made and coming together to steal it back, not a penny more, not a penny less, was a good idea. The truth is that um, I think it was 11 or 12 publishers turned it down. Uh, the 13th or 14th was Jonathan Cape, who gave me an advance of £3,000 and published 3,000 copies. So... I keep reading in the press or hearing that I was an instant bestseller. It's absolutely not true. The bestselling happened overnight, in a sense, with Cain and Abel. That did change everything overnight, because that sold a million copies in the first week uh, and would just was a different existence. May I quickly ask you about Cain and Abel? It celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. 40th anniversary this year. It's on its 123rd reprint. Without blowing smoke, it sold 7 million copies in the UK alone, more than that, I'd imagine now. 32 million worldwide, no. 7 million copies in Britain. Not that you're a man of the numbers. No. <laughs> yes. Can you talk to me about that point when everything started to change? So as you say, that was your closest thing to an overnight um, success. It suddenly sold you know, many, many copies in the first week. How did that change things for you, particularly the process? Well, if you mean how did it change my writing process... I don't think in any way at all. I was then, that was my third book. I knew that the next book was going to be The Prodigal Daughter, the story of the first woman president of the United States. That's 40 years ago, and they still haven't had a woman president of the United States. So I was, by then, considered myself to be a novelist, then to be my full-time job. Um, So that didn't change. I can't pinpoint where I became 
dedicated to the routine I I now uh, do, but I think it's been for at least 30 books because I just find it easier that way. I can think of a hundred reasons not to write a book. So if you've got an excuse not to get out of bed, you've got an excuse because you've got to see someone, you've got an excuse because you're not feeling great, you, you can find excuse after excuse. So get there at six and get on with it. I've spoken to many authors right across the scale of how many books they've sold. I'll be honest, you're probably at the top end. <laughs> so mm. has selling, you know, over 275 million copies now, how much has that changed the way that you tell stories in terms of you'll have fans all over the world that mm. are waiting for the next Jeffrey Archer book? How much are you thinking about them and perhaps moulding your stories for readability? You can't. You can't do that, otherwise you'd be doing it. <laughs> yes, you would. You'd be doing it, Anne, if you... How much do you moulder it to readability for your readers? You'd be doing that. I do what I do and pray. Some people write sex novels. Some people write ghost stories. Some people write children's stories. I write what I write. We all pray that the public will want to buy our books. You can't suddenly do things you've never done before. You do what you do and hope that's what the public like. And no, I haven't changed at all. I think I'm a better craftsman after 40 years, 45 years. But the two of the four of my most popular books are Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less than Cain and Abel, two of the first three books I, I wrote. So no, I haven't changed. Analyzing that a tad further then, why do you think you have sold books than I could probably sell? What is it about the way that you're writing that readers want to read? I, I love to be able to answer that because then you and I could write a book on how to write a book, and we'd make a fortune. No, you can't answer that question. It's an unanswerable question. You get up in the morning, you start once upon a time, and you pray. Everybody writes once upon a time. Very few prayers are answered, but that's the fact. If I, the amount of people who've said to me, tell me how you do it, and if I could tell you, I would. I, I don't, don't know if I believe you there. I don't know. I don't know. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Before we get back into it with Jeffrey Archer, I very quickly want to give a huge shout out to our supporters this week, Libro.fm Audiobooks. If you're in America, Libro.fm, they let you purchase audiobooks directly from your favourite local bookstore. You can pick up more than 125,000 audiobooks from them, including uh, New York Times bestsellers, recommendations from independents across the country as well. Now, with Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest company out there. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, those. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports the writing community, which is exactly what we're about on the show. Now, listeners of Writer's Routine, you can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. All you need to do is go to Libro.fm and enter the code ROUTINE. Libro, L-I-B-R-O, dot F-M, enter the code ROUTINE. Then you get three months audiobooks for the price of one month if you are living in the United States. It should be coming over here to the UK, so you can take advantage of this amazing offer as well in 2020. So bear with me on that one. But if you're in America, you need to make the most of this. Libro.fm, enter the code routine. We've got a busy few months on the show. Some fantastic authors coming in to tell us all about how they work every day. People like uh, Anne Cleves, um, the, the Dagger Crime Award winner, Chris Hammer from Australia. He'll be here to talk us uh, through his first couple of books. I'm sure that all of these will bring you some in, in incredible insights into their working day to help out with yours. And if it is working with yours, if it is helping out your writing day, uh, you can always say thanks to us for bringing you those tips by supporting us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. We don't need a lot either, just a, a dollar or so a month and uh, not even the price of a cup of coffee. It, it can just really help us carry on to bring you these episodes with such fantastic authors as Anne Cleves and Chris Hammer and Jeffrey Archer as often as we can uh, in the best possible way. It just helps me, you know, buy a coffee or a pint for the author, helps me buy uh, all the newest tech stuff that I can to make sure that things don't fail on me. It just helps me bring you these episodes as frequently as possible. So if you're enjoying what we're doing, if we've helped out your writing day, if we've helped you tell stories, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to say thanks and for you to pay it back. You can do that by uh, pledging whatever you can and getting some merch as well. We've got uh, badges, we've got bookmarks on there as well. Just support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back into it then. Talking to this week's guest on writers routine, Lord Jeffrey Archer. His brand new book, Nothing Ventured, is out right now. In this half, we talk about what makes his uh, crime novels different to all the others that you see on the shelves and in that question uh, he gets a little bit combative which is quite a laugh actually and that's on the way also we talk about the research that he put into it and how to do that he had to spend time with proper police people and we leap back into things talking about how he got the very first idea for nothing ventured after the clifton chronicles um, a lot of people wrote and said they liked Harry Clifton and they were fascinated by the fact he was a writer and they wanted to know about his eponymous hero, William Warwick. So I sat down and thought it would be very interesting to write about, put myself in Harry Clifton's shoes and uh, write novels about William Warwick. So I decided I'd make him a constable in the police force, a... Uh, police constable in the, in, in the Metropolitan Police, much against his father's desire because his father uh, wants him to become a lawyer and join him in chambers 
and be a barrister, but he defies his father. So uh, this is the first of, I hope, if I live long enough, the hope of, uh, it'll be the first of seven or eight books, which will take him from uh, constable through to uh, detective sergeant to detective inspector, right the way through to uh, when he becomes commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. If he becomes commissioner, as you said at the very beginning of this interview, if he becomes commissioner, will not depend on his amazing ability or his ambition. It will depend on if I manage to live. What happened next then? You've got this idea. You're going to follow up on uh, a character that many readers have wanted to know more about. What do you do? You already mentioned earlier on that you don't know much about what you're writing every time you sit down. What do you know about this story the very first time you I, write page one, Once Upon a Time? I know he's at school having a row. He's, having, he's back from school having a row with his father, Sir Julian Warwick, a very distinguished QC. Sir Julian doesn't want him to go into the police force. So I'd got that in my mind. I'd start with the row and <clears throat> the fact this boy stood up to his father. His father wanted him to go to um, Oxford and read law. They come to a compromise. He goes to London University and reads the history of art. And they agree that at the end of the three years, uh, if he still wants to join the police force, so be it. And at the end of three years, he does still want to join the police force. Uh, and so the, the story then moves on to him going to police college in Hendon and then on to his first job here in Lambeth as a policeman on the beat with uh, an older man called Fred Yates who teaches him a trick or two. Uh, and then he applies to be a detective and takes the exam and by a stroke of luck, a twist, a something he hadn't expected, it all changes. I want, I want to analyze that further, if I may. That's the point of the show. So, at what point do you know the twist? I think that can come in the morning. Uh, I think that can literally come in the morning. One came this morning when I was writing. I was writing between six and eight this morning, and a twist I hadn't expected came. I've got a young detective watching a door in Westminster Cathedral to see when a certain man comes through because she's uh, on surveillance. And uh, she doesn't realize he's already there. So the reader wonders who's stalking who. Are you brooding over these thoughts, Geoffrey? When you're initially, before you've ever written down anything for this story, you know, when, when you've got the initial idea about uh, William and his dad having a little sparring match over the table, deciding what he's going to do for the future, how are you generating that idea? Is that, you know, you sat here overlooking the Thames? Oh, you can never tell when they come. They could come. In the middle of the night, a lot come when I wake up in the morning around five. But they can come on a walk. They can come at breakfast. They can come at any time. And sometimes people say, you've gone very silent. And I, I realize that a twist I hadn't thought of was, but how can I handle it? How can I handle that twist? How can I make it work? So then I want every human being a million miles away from me so that I can just think about that twist. But no, you, you write, you write, you write, and then the twist comes. Quite often on the show, authors will describe the writing, uh, uh, the, the, the plot to me rather, as a road trip. And you're sat in the steering wheel. Maybe you know where you're starting. You know where you're going to end. Perhaps you know where you're a service station you're going to stop off in the middle. At what point 
do things become clear through the windscreen for you? When do you start to figure out the middle? When do you start to figure out the ending? On the next page. It just goes. I, 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 the, the last line of this book, which so many people have written about and so many commentators have commented on, came that morning. It's just hard to get my head around that because you... Of course it is, because you're not a writer. <laughs> because you know that you're going to... <laughs> because you know that there are going to be, if you're so lucky, seven or eight ver- books, seven or eight in this story. God willing. Have you any idea what those seven or eight are going to be? I find it just strange. No, just the ranks. I know that he'll be... Um, and I also think I know the subject. So, for example, the first subject is art and art theft mm-hmm. and fakes yeah. and... All that world. The second book is drugs and uh, all that world. And the third uh, and the third book is going to be... So I, I know that the third book um, is going to be police corruption and money laundering. So when you say what you know, I know the overall idea. But I haven't got a clue where it'll start or where it'll go or where it'll end. How much time do you need to give yourself before having that very initial idea that you're going to... Well, I start on January the 1st. I don't have a choice. Right, well, Jeffrey, please talk me through your year then, the writing routine of a year, a year in the calendar. Well, it's pretty well all over by August, the 13th or 14th draft. And at this time of year, I may be thinking, but this time of year I'm going to the theatre a lot. Yesterday I was down in Somerset to watch Somerset play cricket against Essex. I've got a lot of auctions. I do a lot of charity auctions in... uh, September, October, November. Uh, then I have my Christmas parties. And then I go back in January to start again. So this is a, a refreshing period. This is a period where the brain is cleared and I'm relaxing and doing the things I love. Mary and I are going to the theater tonight, uh, to the Bridge Theater, to see two women. So it's non-stop, but it's non-stop doing pleasant and relaxing things. There are many crime novels out there. Now, you're top of the tree, up at the top of the tree of them. How are you striving to make yours still stand out and be relevant today? Now, that's the same as the question you asked earlier. Okay. Uh, You've just worded it a different way, which is very cunning. (laughs) I don't know. I'll do what I do and pray. No, I I won't jump out of this window and land in the Thames head first and eat a pigeon because it'll sell more copies. I do what I do. You've asked the same question with different words. Not intentionally. And which you mustn't do as an author, because readers pick that up very quickly. They, oh, you've said that, Jeffrey, already. Boring. Move on. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the... In a non-aggressive way. In a non-aggressive way. <laughs> I'm just trying to get to the bottom of the continued success, really. I just... I find it hard, and I'm clearly wrong, but I find it hard to get my head around the fact that someone like you who has written so many books sold so many copies hasn't got a little way to tap into the creativity you know it's january the first you need to start writing i may be thinking before i remember a a young journalist asked to see me privately in uh, in india and indeed she locked the door when she came into not this room but (laughs) we were in india and she said i want you to tell me the secret of where your stories come from. So I, I said exactly as I said to you, look, I haven't got a clue. I'm very lucky, very fortunate. They just come. And she said, no, no, I'm not going to tell anyone. 
I promise it'll just be you and me. And I said, no, you've misunderstood. I don't know. I don't even know what the next story is. No, no, I'm not going to tell anyone. All right, I said, okay, okay, I give in. In Cambridge, I have a lovely home called the Old Vicarage. And at the end of the garden is a river. And at midnight, I go down and dig a hole just near the river. And in there is the next story. Aren't I lucky? And she lost her temper and ran out of the room. Well, you heard it here second, just after the girl in India. Talk, <laughs> yeah, to, me, talk, talk to me about the research then, Jeffrey. Research this, this, is this is full. This is packed, as in with proper... Packed with research. Yeah, and proper crime, proper detective stuff. Ah, oh, but I cheated. Ah, well, tell me about... Now I we're cheated. getting somewhere, Jeffrey. No, tell me about the cheating. It's in there for you to see. I decided I needed a man and a woman of different rank who were retired from the police. Uh, and I was at a church service in uh, Ad Advent Carol Service for the House of Lords, House of Commons, a parliamentary Advent Carol Service. And a man called John Sutherland, who's a retired uh, chief superintendent, who everyone said was going to be commissioner, yet building this reputation that he was going right through to be commissioner, and sadly had a mental breakdown, what I call one murder too many, and he wrote a brilliant book about it. And he was reading the lesson, and I read the book, read it, I thought his book was wonderful, and I, I, I asked him if he'd be kind enough to become my researcher. So when I finished a book, I would give it to him, and he would make, if I made stupid mistakes, he'd correct them. I then got a, a lady who had advised a friend of mine on art theft, um, he owns a gallery, uh, and she was Detective Sergeant Michelle Roycroft, also thanked in the book. And uh, she was the other scale. <clears throat> She'd always been on the ground floor. She'd always been out there catching criminals. That's what she liked doing, a feisty lady, this one. Wow. And what I found was <clears throat> when they did the research, when they read the book and said, look, Scotland Yard is on the other side of the road, the tube station is called... <clears throat> St. James's, not Victoria. Uh, the inspector has two pips, not three. You know, all the sort of silly things. They also chunted on about their own lives. Their own lives when it came to crime, you've pretty well seen everything nowadays on television or read it. So it was much more the anecdotal stuff that I found interesting. How tough was it for Michelle Rycroft as an attractive woman in, in a job dominated by uh, testosterone mad men. And she was fascinating on that. And in the case of John, what was it like for a man who'd got a degree when not many people in the police had a degree and everyone realized was a practicing Christian who never swore? What was it like for him to be among those same group of men. And out from both of them came amazing personal anecdotes which do get into the book. Because that way the reader can feel, wow, that person's human, that person's real. Uh, I mean, it, it's not in this book, but it'll be in book three. Michelle told me uh, she was sitting down in her office in Scotland Yard or wherever. No, it wasn't. It was in, it was in Fulham Broadway. And, and a, a man put her hand on his thigh and she knocked him out with one punch. Well, of course, that got round the whole police force. 
in a matter of <laughs> days. No one ever, no one ever <laughs> tried it again. But you can't. I mean, that's a wonderful little story. I didn't manage to get it into book one. So she and John, John had amazing stories about uh, some of his colleagues and about the world he was in, and they weren't necessarily simple crime stories. They were human. They were about the life they led, the mad life they lead. How do you how do you survive a married life? There are more divorces in the police force than any other bunch of human beings. Why? They get home late. Their hours are awful. I mean, the whole thing is a disaster for marriage. And they were very interesting on that. Now, John has a fantastically successful marriage with two lovely children. Michelle's divorced. So again, the contrast was fascinating and listening to why and how they handle these things. People who read, they want a human touch. They want to feel the person. They want to love the person. If they don't love your characters, they won't buy the next book. So they have to love Michelle, who's Jackie, and they have to love John, who's William Warwick. Because I've based them. People say, uh, I mean, William Warwick is, is John Sutherland, and Jackie is Michelle. Uh, and I've met... They're not, of course, they're not exactly like them, but... I see them as two people of such contrast and such interesting contrast with only one thing. Their integrity is beyond discussion and their love of the police force is beyond discussion. So that I hope I've got into the book as well. Lastly, let me bring it back to the words on the page by asking you about the words on the page. I, I, I think you might find this quite trivial, but how much do you think about the specific word that's coming next? I don't. Um, it comes. Sometimes I, in the rereading, I might think of a much better word. I thought this morning, um, a girl has come home late at night and obviously slept with someone, and her friend who's in the flat with her doesn't want her to know she knows. And I said, she, after she'd come out of the bathroom, she walked past him and said, X, Y, Z, whatever she said. And I put in the word this morning, the word breezily, she walked past him breezily because I wanted the reader to think she was bluffing that she had never been out the night before. And I thought breezily was a lovely word for that. That can come on the 14th draft. You can get a better word on the 14th draft. I did an interview here um, with Giles Corrin on why his... He, he, he did an interview on television on why his book failed. And the one thing we did discover was he handed in the first draft and published it because he was Giles Corrin. He did a brilliant television program on it, laughing all the way through. So when I told him I did 14 drafts, I mean, he had a fit. And I, and I told him, that not much happens in the 14th draft. You might get a better word on a page. You might get a better sentence if you're lucky. But frankly, it's all there. But I'd never hand in the first draft. Have you ever wondered, perhaps, get it down to 10 drafts? No, you lay about. It ends when it ends, is the truth, Dan, actually. It ends when it ends. When, when you're not doing much on the page, a word, a sentence every four pages, you know you're there. When you're still knocking whole chunks out and rewriting paragraphs, 
You know you're not there. So it takes care of itself. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Also, thank you so much to Geoffrey Archer for coming on the show. He spends half the year writing, half the year enjoying himself. So I'm really pleased that he managed to carve out just a little slither of time to tell me how he gets his stories down on paper. Next week, uh, we'll be chatting to uh, a recent book award winner, Chris Hammer. Uh, I spoke to him a few weeks ago after he'd won, I think, the Dagger Crime Award, something like that. Anyway, I spoke to him the day after he'd won that. Uh, So, you know, the chat is coming up next week. You might need to forgive it if he's a little bit, yeah, tired and hungover, but there are still some amazing gems in there as well. Uh, If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you can always support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you're in America as well, make sure you do make the most of that Libro.fm audiobook offer. And I will see you next week on the show with Chris Hammer telling us his writer's routine. Bye. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 